Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around New Zealand who are passionate about creating workplaces that thrive. We catch up on a regular basis to share our knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to work well and live well. In this session, we turn our focus to that all-important question. How do we effectively measure well-being at work? With the increased focus on well-being in the workplace, there is a growing demand to accurately measure employee well-being, track progress, and deliver results. Of course, there are many ways to evaluate workplace well-being too. So where to start and what's realistic? Dr. Mark Wallace-Bell joins us to share answers to these questions and to discuss the benefits and potential pitfalls of measuring well-being at work. We discuss organisational measures, such as engagement surveys, and personal measures, such as wearable devices. We also explore which metrics are important and how to demonstrate the effectiveness of well-being initiatives at work. Kia ora everyone, and welcome. It's a real pleasure to be involved in this opportunity to, I think, share and, and discuss more than for you listen to a presentation. In terms of my CV, yes, I worked in the UK as a registered nurse and then as a psychologist. And I think it's probably as I trained as a psychologist in my undergraduate degree that I became more and more aware of the importance of research methodologies and research analysis and the methodologies and analyses or ways in which you can analyse data. My early research actually in psychology involved um, even before the advent of computers. I mean, computers were around in the 1980s when I was doing my psychology degree, but they were terribly sophisticated as they are now. And I had to actually physically measure heart rate printouts from ECGs and EEG data and actually translate that by pencil and pen onto a spreadsheet and then analyze that data, you know, using computers as 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 best I could at the time. So that really schooled me, I think, in the importance of accuracy and of measurement and then analysis. And there's myriad ways in which we can analyze data from a quantitative perspective. And then the whole area of qualitative, which I've had some experience of in master's students and supervision of the PhD students, is a whole other area, which we might also touch on today. So I thought I'd start by maybe just going through the presentation. And this is a collection of, uh, of not only my own ideas, but gl stuff that I've gleaned from other sources as well with regards to how we might measure this new and emerging area of well-being in the workplace. So measurement or evaluation, research, I mean, no of the terms we can use, but what's important, I think, and the key message here is that if we are going to be um, providing some kind of intervention in the workplace that's focused on well-being, promoting health or well-being, reducing the burden of mental health or whatever it might be, or stress in the workplace, those are important things to do, but how do we measure their outcomes or the interventions we provide? So why is this important? Well, there's been a huge growth, as we know, in well-being wellness interventions that have uh, been spawned and been developed and now developing even now. And as Sarah's already highlighted, you know, a great deal of investment, that is the actual dollars have been spent on very elaborate and very detailed and very costly sometimes interventions. And I'm aware in my reading of the research, which is vast and I haven't read everything that's available, that what's best practice around evaluating well-being in the workplace is still an evolving field. And I'll talk a bit about later on some resources that are available to help with that. 
and even less are good randomized or really good controlled research studies that have evaluated intervention X within, against intervention Y. There have been quite a, a number of studies of that, but that we need more really to inform us about what does work in the workplace. I think at the moment, the well-being kind of industry, if we can call it that, is a bit of a wild west. Lots of ideas out there, lots of ways in which we can use tech and technology and interventions of various kinds without a really sound appreciation, I think, of what does the research evidence say. And when I say research evidence, I mean scientific published research articles. So forgive me, um, everyone, if I do talk a little bit from that sort of academic research perspective that uh, I'm... Um, obviously biased in that regard. And one of the reasons I think we need to take appreciation of some of the published research is that that research would more, more often than not use a, a rigorous methodological approach and a rigorous analysis and be peer-reviewed, which protects against bias. Because a lot of people might make claims about the, their intervention or with claims around their new resource, which may not stand up to rigorous scientific analysis. So how do you work out what are scientifically supported and what uh, isn't um, and where do you go to for that research and for that knowledge so that's one question and I'll leave that for us to discuss later and in this presentation I'm necessarily offering a how-to or what you should do or how you might do it but really posing a number of questions for us to sort of digest and then possibly discuss in the future as to how you might do it because as many as there are many different wellness interventions in different settings there may well be a different some methodologies and things you might want to be thinking about when evaluating or researching an intervention. Some of the benchmarks that are common that people use at the outset of a, a well-being intervention would be to consider things like attitudes amongst staff towards well-being, the activity levels um, in, in employees, how you might measure that we'll come on to in a little in a while. Employee health, and there could be a number of ways to measure that, physical health and mental health well-being measures there are many of those the cost benefit analysis that's some kind of, uh, focus you need to probably think about for a lot of people who want to make sure that their, their dollar spend on the intervention is going to deliver something that's of benefit you might want to benchmark stress levels and there are different ways of doing that and a whole other number of possible things that you could look at um, that could also be accessed through existing hr data resources but also might require some more thought about how you might obtain these benchmarks this is not an exhaustive list, just a number of things that are commonly used or thought about in terms of determining a benchmark. So next step would be you've decided on a program, you um, disseminate it through the workforce. There's been a degree of participation, perhaps, and engagement, and then you want to see whether this has actually made a difference. Now, one question you might need to think about is how short that and how long that follow-up might be. Most good research would probably want to look at long-term follow-up research over a six-month to a year period to see whether there's been an intervention has had an impact, not just in the short term, in the long term. Um, and repeat evaluations um, can go as long, and in some studies have been as long as five to ten years, depending on the nature of the intervention, uh, to determine long-term effects. So we've got to, I think, consider how we evaluate the outcome, whether we want to look at short, medium, or long-term effects and whether those are of value to you, and whether they're possible as well within the workforce or in the environment you're working in, because some people may not be with you for that long, um, and following them up post-employment um, may not be that easy. We also need to think about not just outcome, but process and impact as well. 
we could look at performance measures that enables you to do that, looking at um, whether the program has been implemented as planned. You might have a good plan or methodology for how you might uh, roll this out, but it may not have been possible to implement all aspects of that plan that haven't gone well. So looking at how the process of implementation has gone, that's one way of evaluating the program. You might have defined some quality assurance criteria or process measurements. Uh, that's a process measurement that you wanted to employ. Whether their participation of the, uh, of the intended participants has, uh, has gone well, that's a process measurement. Documenting the individual employee health impacts of a program, that's more about impact. A number of ways you could do that, depending on what the health focus might be. Absenteeism rates um, and so on could also be an outcome measurement. And cost benefits of a program, outcome measurements also an important aspect. Some, in some cases, the most important aspect. Process measurements, as I've said, may well involve things like participant rates, adherence levels, satisfaction, uh, and perceived value to the individual. And also, to some extent, how much not just the individual or participants in the in the project have uh, engaged or participated, but what level of uh, commitment has been um, evidenced in the management's um, of, uh, management's commitment to the to the process. Here's a, a list. I'm not going to read through it. A, a number of ways in which impact measurements could include health beliefs and attitudes, which is an area that I'm particularly interested in towards health through health surveys, uh, typically done through online readiness for change. I think that's an area interested in mine, particularly in terms of health behavior change, how we might measure that, how we might measure motivation and perceived health status of individuals based on before and after intervention. And control and personal power, I think that's another interesting area how much autonomy people have and feel they have in their over their work environment and their health and in some studies they've actually focused particularly on cardiovascular uh, risk or cases of, of disease incidents and musculoskeletal injuries depending if you know you wanted to focus on the physical side or the psychological side there are a number of ways in which we could look at impact and in terms of outcome and these could be a short term medium to long term again physical and mental health may also be a, a focus for that, as well as a financial return, which is an outcome, uh, return on investment calculations, which may need to be done. This is somewhat new to me. I haven't really kind of conceived of it in this way, but it's a good way to think about it. And this is something that I think comes from the health and safety literature of the guidance around that is out there that books about leading indicators and lagging indicators. And here are some examples. I think the, the graphic at the bottom helps probably describe it quite succinctly that leading indicators are influencing future performance and lagging indicators analyze past performance and that could be applied to health and well-being interventions as well. And we could think of some in the area of say maybe trying to reduce BMI or increase physical activity, what the leading indicators and what the lagging indicators might be in, in that kind of scenario. And of course, as proliferation happens in this area, more and more data is going to be available. The use and the advent of, uh, of technology that can capture a whole range of data about individuals, their movements, their physical activity, their calorie intake, their dietary content, and a whole range of data that can be uh, gathered, as well as mental health data in the moment, creates a whole grade of data and uh, what we might be calling uh, big data. Um, and in this, I think it poses some really important questions about how we manage that data, who owns it, how it's stored, can it be unsold, can it be used or utilized for other reasons, and how we might analyze large data sets. It brings up some ethical questions, which we might also be able to um, discuss later on as well.
So some questions to ask ourselves when we're thinking about evaluating or measuring the impact of our wellness program. How do we measure or how do you propose to measure the success in terms of impact and outcome and process? And if you are going to measure those three aspects, are you using what might be called reliable or validated tools to monitor impact of the process or outcome? Before the onset of an intervention, have you thought about your evaluation methodology? That might be time points for uh, follow-ups. And do you have that in-house expertise to develop and um, work that strategy through to provide some quality assurance to it? Is it the best model? Is it the most appropriate model? Is it using messages which are sensitive, valid, and reliable? And the people who are making decisions about this, is evaluation important to them? And what level of detail might they require? Are you measuring your return on income? And if so, how are you doing that? And lastly, based on that point around ethics of data collection, what is your policy on the ethics of what we might call covert or overt data collection? That may well happen using technologies that are available. So for some guidance on some of this, losing some existing research that's come out of America with a reference here at the bottom, there are actually some good guides. This isn't the only one, but it's one I think I've, I've referred to in my own work quite a bit and we've been using with, within My Health Revolution. is a good example of a, of a quality measure, measurement guide. It comes from the Health Enhancement, Enhancement Research Organization, or HERO. You can go to their website and get actually a free download and copy of this, which has a very extensive um, guide and uh, examples of questions and metrics you could use for employee health, which focus on financial health, participation, satisfaction. So I would advocate that if you are thinking about measurement, looking at the impact of your intervention in the workplace, go to a, a recognized um, guidance document. This one comes from the US. Obviously, it may not be entirely appropriate to each circumstance in different parts of the world, but this is considered to be a good resource that um, would help guide you in, in your decision-making about how best to, to start the process and then you know, make sure that what you're measuring um, and how you're measuring is as best as it can be. So that's the end of the presentation. I don't know, that touches on a number of issues there. I don't know, Sarah, you want to start off with grilling me a little bit with questions? <laughs> I did have some questions to start grilling you with. Um, yeah, go. So one of the first things I was thinking, you know, when it comes to measuring well-being in organisations, and I can say this too as someone who sat, you know, in the HR chair in, mm -hmm. in an organisation, mm -hmm. and, and we were right, I want to do some research around this. I need to show some results. I need to show that what I've done has had an impact. I guess one of the first things we always ask is, you know, what does good research look like? What, what are some of the things that I'm going to need to absolutely make sure that I have done? So, you know, we talked a little bit about the bias and the ethics and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. You know, is there a checklist of things that I really need to tick off to make sure that, you know, that that's, it's absolutely going to be good research? And you've touched on some of those things, but I was just thinking like the highlight well, I, I think there's process stuff around how you do research. And I think we maybe need to qualify the difference between research and evaluation. So from a research perspective, so I've got a master's student who's probably going to be doing a bit of work on well-being in the workplace around and, and adolescence. No, not the workplace, around well-being in adolescence. In schools, actually. So that's kind of a workplace, an educational establishment. And as part of that master's thesis, so she'll be writing a piece of research on this. 
she's going to go through a process of defining her hypothesis. So what, what is the experimental question? You know, what is it she's trying to answer? Rather than just going out, ask, finding out a whole bunch of uh, answers to some questions she might have that think might be useful to ask, and then trying to make sense of it afterwards. So she's got to define the question first. What is it you're looking to, to evaluate? What is it you're looking to measure and why? You know, and what are maybe some of your hypotheses? So if we do this, we expect this to happen. Does the evidence support that? And it might not. The thing about research is that you have to entertain the possibility you might be wrong with your hypothesis. You might expect this change to happen, but the research data tells you, yes, your hypothesis is supported by this evidence. And you can be fairly confident that your intervention has made the difference that you expect. So having a, a, a clear a priori or prior to doing anything and assumptions about some questions about what is it we're trying to achieve, what is it we're going to do, and then how are we going to measure it. So I think the, the, the other key thing we would have to have in place is some very clear decisions made about what might your measures be and when you're going to make those measurements. You could, you could use a measure that, um, that supports you, know, you being able to say in confidence, oh, we made, this made a difference a very global measure, but it doesn't have a, a lot of sensitivity. It doesn't tell you maybe why, yeah, or some of the detail behind that. You can see that, that people moved, but then how, how fine-grained of an analysis can you make on what made the change happen, which I think is probably you know, drilling down a little bit further. And then I was thinking in terms of those measures, because this is one of the conversations we often have is, you know, we go to measure something and we say, right, we're going to run a healthy living program in an organization. You know, mm -hmm. what are the things we're looking to change? And so within that, it's often the conversation, what can we tangibly, realistically measure that, it, mm -hmm. that we can actually have an impact? And what are some of the things we hope might happen? You know, maybe we want people to, you know, eat, eat more fruit and vegetables or maybe that's mm -hmm. a behavioral outcome or whatever. But mm -hmm. what's the difference between what we can realistically measure and change and what are some of the things that we hope to change that are more difficult because they have environmental factors or yeah. things that happen at home that we can't yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that this morning that, you know, we're thinking about this workplace as this sort of, I suppose, isolated environment where there's no other influences that can impinge on people's activity in the workplace. And that's not the case, is it? I mean, the reality is people go to work and spend a lot of their time in the workplace, but there are so many other factors, environmental, social, psychological, that impact on their behavior outside of work that correlate to what happens in work. And so there's a limit to how much we can impact on and, and I suppose control for those factors. So we're never, I think, we're gonna get a complete picture we can say with some clarity, our intervention in the workplace improved mental health, well-being, a sense of um, community or whatever it is you are trying to create. But we also have to entertain the possibility there could be other factors that have taken away from that intervention that are beyond our control and, other, and factors outside the workplace that could have increased that outcome also out of our control. I suppose what I'm saying is you never get the 100% of the truth with research or evaluation. You're only really approximating what you think might be happening. You're never really definitively saying this is what's happened. The nature of scientific endeavor never tells you the truth. It just tells you, based on evidence, here's what we think might be the case. And it could be, it could be that you're wrong. Which probably comes to my next question, which is when we come to interpret the data, mm. are there some, some rules or some frameworks that help us to interpret data well? 
Yes, there are. And I think, again, it depends on whether you're thinking about a scientific piece of research, you know, evaluating a, a condition A against condition B or intervention A against intervention B. And statistical analyses would help you determine the statistical difference or, you know, the effect size between the two groups and so on. And there are very rigorous analyses that you can employ in doing that. But I don't think seeing a lot of people doing that because obviously that takes a fair bit of expertise and there's a fair bit of know-how that needs to be you know, used to be able to do that properly. I'm not saying people can't do it, but maybe most organisations may not have access to that kind of analysis. They need to outsource that to another organisation, universities, etc. So then it comes down to evaluation, and typically we use measures, you know, in surveys of attitudinal scales. And did you think that this intervention was of value to you? Did it make a difference to you? Did you feel better now than you did before? Those kind of questions. Nothing wrong with those, and we can aggregate those responses across a whole a population or a group of people and say, on average, people felt better because you know they moved from an average of 4.5 before to an average of 6.5 afterwards, and that's a 2.5 average difference, you know, um, on the scale. That looks like it's good, but even though there's been a shift, we can't necessarily say that that would happen every time we do this. Yeah, so we did a, the project again with a whole different group of people, we might get a different result. So the, the, the difficulty with some of these studies or evaluations, you can't generalize from that one study, which might be a very small sample, to a larger population and say, if you do this kind of intervention with these kind of people in this kind of workplace in, over in another uh, area or you know, another country or another uh, workplace, you will get the same outcome. It's unlikely that you would. You might, but you can't generalize from that piece of research to, to the wider population, unless you've got some really rigorous statistical analysis to support those kind of statements. Which is why things like sample size and having a larger group involved in the research and evaluation and aggregating that data and making sure that you know its 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 power is 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 improved, then you could probably get into the territory of saying, you know, from a, this study, I think we can make some generalizable assumptions that these types of interventions make a difference in say mental health um, outcomes, um, and therefore you want to, might want to employ this kind of intervention in your workplace and have some confidence it will make a difference. And then um, I'm thinking if I put my, my HR hat on again of going back to being in an organisation, I've, you know, I've got a board report due in two weeks and I need to show that my wellbeing interventions that I've done over the last you know, couple of months have, have made a difference or a year or, or whatever yeah. it is. What are some of the go-to measures that I might have already that I can use to start tracking? So if I don't, I decide I just want to use what I may already have within the organization what what could I look for that is a good question um, and I kind of maybe you want to put it out to the larger group as to what they are currently doing because I think it might be useful to hear what people are using so I'm thinking things like engagement measures I'm yes. thinking health and safety statistics I'm thinking you know abs the old absenteeism um, of sick yep. leave yep that's a good one sick leave dawn that's already collected through HR and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, one, and in relate to that, might well be how many people are uh, uh, utilizing EAP services. Mm. So that's yeah. a good one. Here's a good question for you on EAP. So, if we roll out an initiative and 
we see that there's been an increase in the number of people who are going to EAP. And I guess this comes to interpreting the data. Do we interpret that as it has worked because there is an awareness now that they can use EAP? Or is it more that now because people are using it or there's more distress or, you know, mm. is it a positive finding or a negative finding? And how do we interpret that difference? Is there something we can do? I mean, personally, I think if more people are using AP services, it's probably a good thing, but it may actually signal that people are feeling more able to access those services and you maybe reduce the sort of stigma or the whatever might be, you know, limiting or inhibiting people to access those services has now been freed up and people feel it's okay to access those, and, you know, be more proactive with that. And I think for me, that's a positive. I mean, you could envision a scenario where your intervention's actually done some harm and, and more people have to access EAP because of that. Let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> so that was really all I had. Was there any last um, questions or, or any parting thoughts that anyone had before we wrap up the session? No? Any parting comments from you, Mark? Unmute, yeah. Don't be scared <laughs> of research and getting involved in it. I mean, it's, a, you know, it, it's something that some people maybe shy away from, you know, don't like statistics and, and analyses and so on, but uh, a lot of resources are available now and, and opportunities to you know, learn a little bit more and some guidance as I've, I've given an example from that HERO website, which is an excellent resource. So if you're thinking about, you know, looking a bit more fine-grained and a little bit more detailed about what you want to measure, have a, have a look at that resource. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Wellness Champions Network, head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.